Are you there, Dr. Koontz? Yes, sir. I'm here. Okay, so like I'm on Twitter for like five minutes because I'm trying to re-engage Twitter, not to use it to read it, but to put something out there. And so if you're on Twitter and, you, and you've been watching recently, there's a lot less of like I'm retweeting what's going on with Trump or whatever, but like uh, trying to insert a theological truth into the... Ugh, the deathosphere of, of information that, that Twitter is. Um, so, you know, today I call out to pray uh, Psalm 89 and stuff like that. Anyway, so I'm on very briefly. And, and last night I stumble into this six minute compilation video of some guy who claims to be a former uh, high level, you know, like white collar builder who was involved in the underground facilities around like a lot of the western edge of United States uh, military bases, Arizona, California, um, uh, Nevada, all those all those ring, ring out there, you know, Area 51 kind of stuff. And it dovetails into Area 51 very quickly where he talks about how they basically found aliens when they were trying to build these bases underground and now we're in a war against them. And that's what's really going on that explains everything in the universe, if only you knew. And they're going to have him commit suicide so be careful and then he did like in 1992 he committed suicide and and you know fulfills the prophecy therefore it must all be true and i'm just like oh, i wasn't ready for that one last night that wasn't that wasn't you know, underground alien <laughs> hidden american political yeah. you know okay. uh, triage I, I, okay. I want to I hear your thoughts but i had to just kind of think it through to myself this morning and i thought you know what a demon possessed man could tell a story for 30 years and be just deadpan honest about what he says he saw. And then the demon could tell him to commit suicide, even though he warned everyone that, you know, someone else was going to kill him and make it look like suicide. The demon could be like, commit suicide. He'd do it just to make the lie stick. That was my thought right. this morning about this, but I'd love to hear your own. So that has to do with a, a couple of things that we haven't really talked about on the show, except maybe in passing. And this is as good a time as any to talk about them, I guess. Full disclosure to the listener, I was completely unprepared for this, but that's not going to stop us. That's right. I wasn't um, ready last night either, Dr. Coons. <laughs> I was not ready. <laughs> One and and the just base level operation here or or operating assumption that I have is that uh, this is being both quote revealed, but also believed in much more fervently. I mean, belief in cryptids, ghosts, aliens has to be at some sort of all-time high. Certainly knowledge of them, reference to them is, is at some kind of all-time high. But it's definitely being exposed or revealed by the government or supposed government operators much more frequently in recent years. It's not, there's no pretended cover-up. It's just something that 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 happened and and here's what we did and here's what happened and this is inexplicable and Go watch this other documentary. And it just as a operating assumption is that the explosion of both interest and belief in these things, the credibility that they are given is far greater than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And so I see this entire area of belief discussion and, and we can go into it as a a good example of the the growth of what we talked about when we talked about the Pacific Northwest hmm. the growth of paganism in a modern a modern country because this is a this is a way to believe kinds of stories 
not only to give them credibility, but also to be invested in their truth that you will find in every pagan society. And that that's not all I have to say about this, but that that is that is my assumption is that whatever is actually happening, and that's what we can spend plenty of time talking about, but whatever is actually happening, most things in life are going to appear to most people as functionally magical. So the question is, what is it that you are lending such intense belief to? What are what are you giving yourself to? What are you treating as obvious? And this is now one of those things. So if it's particularly in the West, because of the very high proportion of federal land and federal installations, you're going to get aliens. But if you look at maps of reported alien sightings, they appear almost only in uh, industrialized nations. Basically, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, maybe Japan a little bit. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Places where, you know, they don't know the Pleiades actually is a star cluster that might show up and not look the same on <laughs> yeah. your camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It's just, there, there's an ignorance thing here going on, but there's there's also a what fills the vacuum when traditional forms of belief are gone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. So let me let me see if I can do a backflip here in the same direction, and then you can you can smack me if I got us <laughs> on the run. But or you can maybe hit it from there. So okay, so I'm supposed to believe that there's like a space marine sixty year sub op going on two and a half miles before the surface of the American Midwest, and then all over the world where American bases are because we're protecting the universe from aliens. And you know that's why NATO is so important. All this stuff. So I'm supposed to believe this. But that this is like a, a crazy sort of underground dark troll thing where they they can't come above except in these flying saucer things. So they have it's like super tech that gets them out of the center of the earth to be spotted flying around and stuff. And it's all like kind of psi stuff anyway, right? P-S-Y. So they've got these um, greater level of uh, computer organic fusion, Elon Musk wishes kind of stuff going on. So they can get in these like invisible jets and, and project themselves all over. But they're kind of trapped underneath the earth uh, physically. Uh, for whatever reason, and by the way, there's nine subspecies of this, apparently. Um, and so so here they are, and we're at war with them, because what they're trying to do is to mine us for human bodies to, like, take the adrenal gland and secrete a solution that is, like, their their erotica. It is, is their greatest thing, right? And so there they are. We're in a war against these things chained underneath the earth. They can't get out, but they want to eat our, our, our souls or something, right? And so, oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. Did, did it, I feel like the New Testament says something about kept in chains of gloomy darkness, bound beneath the earth in order to await a final destruction. So, so what if like, oh no, it's all just a big fat lie, but no, really, no, really, the story is true. We're engaged in a complete warfare of a psychological nature against these uh, fallen angelic beings who are bound here on earth in chains of gloomy darkness, seeking to destroy you and to believe that they just tip their hand. Yeah, when you get adrenal fatigue, like they love that. They're eating that up. They're doing that to you. That's the war. It's right here. You have to go underground in New Mexico. They're at psychological pressure from the demon, right? Which is what the story is. Psychological pressure from the demon. Oh no, be worried about New Mexico, Jonathan. Yeah, 
Not, not today, sir. Well, I shouldn't call him sir. So I don't know. How, how'd that one run by you? <laughs> well, I, I think that it's something where you have to you have to extract some of the particular details and also the fascination that every human being has in knowing secrets, what would appear to be secrets <laughs> and the revelation of secrets, disclosures, right? And just look at the basic story elements. So if you get a story about this alien or this ghost or this whatever it is that people lend credibility to, and we talked about this in the in the Covenant School episode, but what you want to do is take that take that way that that's being told or or here's what happened or or this is what I now believe and just extract the historically particular details so this is a industrialized country with low levels of religious attachment so we have to talk in terms of like science and and beings from far away et cetera et cetera and you just map it onto the way that demons behave in the scriptures and you'll find that they're pretty doing close exactly link what up. Yeah, pretty yeah. close link up right up to the human sacrifice and the mutilation and uh, exactly all that exactly stuff. so it's in that way i mean that that's why i have the basic operating assumption the thing that i find really kind of fascinating about it and the, the reason that i'm interested in things like this generally is not particularly because of the details of this or that sighting, this or that story, the the Kecksburg UFO sighting, whatever. I'm interested in the way that our government has become very much intertwined with secrecy of every kind. And some of that can be exaggerated and can be seen to just be bureaucratic self-obsession. So if anyone from anywhere inside, you know, Langley put a sentence in this document, now it's top secret. And that, that's that's a growth of bureaucracy and a growth of layering and a growth of a utter lack of transparency that pretty much anybody who's conservative or libertarian and has a pulse is already familiar with. That's not, that's not really that interesting to me, the, the growth of bureaucracy. Of course it does. What's interesting to me is the way that because of the growth of bureaucracy, our government, both in its own personal agencies, but also through things that it funds, and you have a nexus, say, in New Mexico of both agencies and funding for research related to nuclear physics. You have entire sites that are old enough to be now historical sites you can go visit in New Mexico, in addition to the places that they do research on these various things that are very poorly understood by the public, right? But what you're dealing with there is that our government, certainly during and after the Second World War, in, in a way that uh, it was honestly unprecedented just because of the scale of everything, our government during and after the Second World War and continuing now still today, it's why the, the Second World War is such a such a break with the past is devoting itself to research that could be considered very arcane, very strange. And it has sort of two directions here. The direction that concerns aliens and aircraft, and maybe it's just aircraft, or 
maybe it's just aliens or maybe, you know, who know, right? Like people come down. This is what people love to debate, right? This is, this is great food for your average Reddit user, right? What, what are they doing? What are they talking about? And that's, what's interesting about that is the person never asks, why are they involved in this at all? That that's what I'm interested in because research into the mysteries of the universe is not something that in a Christian society is generally given to governmental authorities. And I mean, I know that sounds odd, but if you want to combine astronomy and in the meaning of, you know, secret things reserved only for a certain class of people, that's what priestcraft is. If you want to combine astronomy and priestcraft and the power to kill other people with sanction, you'd have to go to a pre-Christian society. You could go to ancient Babylon, for example. You could go to ancient Persia. You could go to ancient China. But you couldn't go to a Christian society because in a Christian society, research into the creation is reserved for what we might think of as private citizens or very, very frequently, it's a it's something that the clergy do. And I'm not saying that like, Here's your Bible passage that proves only, you know, only pastors should know about astronomy. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when you're looking at history, you you want to look at patterns. Otherwise, you're just learning facts like, you know, which unit was where on, you know, the morning that it, the Battle of Antietam started like that. And that's good. Like you need to know that stuff. But if you don't see patterns, you're not really seeing anything. You're more of a a chronologist than you are a historian. If you want to think profitably about history, whether your own or somebody else's, you need to look for patterns. And one of the patterns here is that research and we, you know, bookmark for me, if you would, Jonathan, like the whole discussion of historical particularities of our government and how it's gone about this and everything. But to speak very generally about patterns is that you're dealing with a pattern where you have powers especially powers in and over, at least claim, powers in and over the heavens that in a Christian society are reserved for people who do not bear the sword. Hmm. Bearing the sword along with controlling the heavens is something that pagan societies have regularly demonstrated because they don't have a distinction. Just set the word separation aside. They don't have a distinction between church and state. Any Christian society is going to manifest that distinction because the things of God are simply not the things of Caesar. So they they have their own spheres, let's say, and Caesar's is very limited. But, you know, the Bishop of Rome, later called the Pope, is not supposed to be somebody who bears the sword because he is not doing the same job as Caesar. He's announcing an eternal kingdom instead of one that, you know, has your loyalty right now, but it'll go away someday. So things that were of eternal significance in a Christian society generally go into the realm that we would now call it's kind of a it's kind of a it's a sort of a useless word, but we might call them private. And then public things, like the sword, those are somewhere else. But eternal things, both 
the gospel, but also the mysteries of God's creation are not used by people who are subject to the delusion that they're going to live forever, which is, as we've said over and over and over again, kings. So it's the fact that our government is manifesting patterns of life like a pagan society. I'm not saying this means they're going to like fall in 20 years. I mean, Babylon survived a long time. I'm just saying that's one of your markers to know that America is not currently, perhaps it was before, perhaps it could be again, but it certainly is not currently a Christian nation. Because if it were a nation of Christians, let's say it that way, talk about formal allegiances and whatever else, you know, a state church, just set that aside. For a nation of Christians, Christians would perceive the danger in according power over the heavens to someone who also has to kill people and certainly can persecute them and terrorize them as part of what he does by his vocation, you might even say. Well, certainly that's particularly dangerous. Certainly if you observe that in his, in his hunger, right? So like the man who's called to bear the sword is like, sure, fine, but I'm going to go find the super juju. Well, this is a bad sign. (laughs) It's a bad sign for everybody. You know, it means, it means that his, his bloodlust and his hate and his greed, uh, this is, this is what the man's about. Um, and so to see the return to paganism here, I think, is probably the most universal way to talk about this. I've been trying to use that word for years now, um, yep. and I've never really seen it catch on. But it, it does describe just about everything out there that isn't like, you know, a hardcore Judaism or something. And if you want to put it in a realm of they're worshiping nature. That's what's going on. They're worshiping power. That's what's going on. And so they they need to have secrets behind the power. It's not enough just to think that I have an evolutionary tree and I'm made from monkeys. Like I can say that for a while, um, but my I, I need the unseen and its mysteries to be like greater than unexplainable chaos. And so you have to seek some other thing to, to worship. And, and if that's Bigfoot or, or the aliens or whatever, all of it is part of a rising tide of actual pagan worship uh, that is what American society kind of has to expect its civilization is going to be built of or deconstructed by, uh, you know, over the next however long, except for in those places where men of wisdom, which you can call it common sense if you want, um, uh, pray to their God who is true and, and take a stand against it, right? So, and that begins by recognizing how how distracting so many of these stories really end up being. So I will distract us by asking you to go back to, you know, the U.S. government, uh, some of yeah. the details uh, and the the occult, sure. the arcane, the bizarre post-World War II. Yeah. What I really want to know, though, I mean, if I'm really going to ask the questions like this. All right. So there, there was like some some crazy evil going on in, in Nazi Germany or something. Right. And then we over and we won and we came back and we got crazy evil ourselves. Like, that's what I think is fascinating. Like what, what happened there? Who sold, who sold to what, when, for why? Yeah. If I can just, yeah. (laughs) It's a bit, if I, (laughs) if I, yeah, if I can, well, no, if I can just, I mean, I, I, I don't, I hate doing it, but if I can just, well, actually it is that what, what's happening with particularly in, we talked a little bit about this in the world war two episodes, we are appropriating with um, a vastly greater financial and industrial capacity, a lot of research originally done by relatively impoverished German researchers from between the wars. The most famous of these is obviously Einstein, 
but because of his Jewish ethnicity, I don't really know about his religion. I honestly don't haven't looked into him as a person very much, but because of his Jewish ethnicity and perhaps because of his political allegiances, I don't really know. Einstein leaves Germany at the outset of the national socialist regime. So what, but what I mean by this, and if you go back to the world war two episodes, this concerns everything from rockets to jet airplanes to other things, including cancer research that we appropriate particularly in the United States of America, because we have the geographic good fortune to not really be subject to attacks by any side during the Second World War or during the first. There are some people that die in Alaska, and there are a couple of people that die from a stray bomb balloon in Oregon, but that's pretty much it on the American you know, homeland. So obviously with Pearl Harbor as an exception. Okay, obviously, just bracket that. But but because of that, we are able to develop what is researched elsewhere into practical things here. It's part of the reason that although many people sought a nuclear weapon, we both attained one and deployed it. Prior to the Second World War, um, and this is where I see World War I as decisive spiritually in the way that World War II is decisive politically and ideologically. Between the wars, particularly in the 1930s, is a time of great extremism and daring politically, ideologically, socially. And this, this really gets forgotten because we just get taught about the Great Depression. But communism is flourishing in most Western countries in a variety of ways. The Soviet Union is actually rising because Stalin is consolidating his power. Obviously, there's national socialism in Germany. But to speak specifically about the pursuit of science, in the United States of America, we are truly all over the map. And particularly, atomic research is all over the map. Part of the reason that we have certain of the researchers that we do in the United States is because we will accept Jewish refugees from Germany Austria and allied regimes in the 1930s. But some of those guys, even whether they're Jewish or not, like Robert Oppenheimer, are homegrown. So this has to do with the pursuit of science as its own goal without apparent other theological or even more broadly ideological commitments about what it's for, where it's going, and what its limits are. It is unbounded. And a guy that I know you're interested in, and I think I introduced you to on Twitter, but who has some very strange ideas about this, Charles Wayne Wexkull, talks about, and he uses a term, and the term you'll probably find pop up all over Twitter, but the insight about modern Western man using this term is from the German thinker Oswald Spengler, who said that Western man is fundamentally Faustian. That's a reference to the Faust myth or story about the pursuit of knowledge that involves treating with the devil and being overtaken by him eventually. Right? So you can go read Goethe's Faust, for example, and find out more about that and see how Goethe handles it. And what Spengler is saying is that modern Western man is fundamentally Faustian. He is fundamentally and tragically pursuing something that will destroy him. He is very wise. He is very powerful. He is very knowledgeable. 
but he is destroying himself fundamentally. So when you think of it that way, you realize that partly because of our geographic good fortune and then the other conditions that that made possible, we were able to pursue things that no one else was able to pursue. I think we said in the World War II episodes, the Germans, just as a little thought exercise, assume that the Germans win, at least in Europe, and then maybe sue for peace with the Americans, which which was eventually seemingly the plan, right? Is that if they defeated the Soviet Union and and Britain, or maybe if they just defeated the Soviets, they would they would sue for peace either with all the Anglophones or or with the Americans and leave it at that. I mean, they at that point control the continent and their their war objectives have been achieved. They have functioning combat jet aircraft by the end of the war. So they are they are running along the same lines. The operations that the one shipping Germans to America is called paperclip. I can't off the top of my head remember the one shipping Germans to Russia. But the point of those operations is to take that human spiritual energy and channel it into the objectives of the Soviet regime and the American regime. The American regime is particularly unchained, which you can see not just in our nuclear researchers, but also in our Ours and the British bombing decisions. We've talked about that on the show before. The ideas that we have about just completely effacing certain countries from the face of the earth, all of that is on the table. We are, as we said before, the ones that actually deployed a nuclear weapon, right? Something very spiritually tragic had already occurred for those ideas to be on the table. And honestly, Jonathan, when we did the World War II episodes, I didn't quite realize that because I had not read nearly as much about, let's say, pre-technologically modern wars as I have now, where it's much easier to see all of the limits that even in his, you know, scorched earth march to the sea, William Tecumseh Sherman placed on his troops during the American Civil War that aren't even apparently mental reservations in the minds of people, you know, deploying mass bombing technologies, um, deploying nuclear weapons, wanting in Oppenheimer's case to use far more than we did and so on and so forth. And there are very strange little episodes in all of this, lots of characters to be discussed. But if you look into Anybody who is around in the 1930s in some sort of power and is still around in the early 1950s who's in some sort of power, like many of the scientific research associates or administrators, Vannevar Bush, J. Robert Oppenheimer, his brother who was a communist, they all share a a very, very, for then very modern, but even for us kind of modern commitment to science for its own sake and that is that that is exactly what spengler identified as faustian that western man was making a a deal with the devil quite literally in the pursuit of increasing levels of power particularly scientifically researched and 
administered power that would thereby destroy him. So Western man is self-destructing. Since I am one, that's that's a bitter pill to swallow. But I guess it's a nice it's a nice seg, not quite to where we want to go, but I think we're on the way. Um, you mentioned something to me about a week ago uh, privately. I just want to ask kind of using a word you used and yeah. a broader question. What does it mean when a hardening comes upon a people? A hardening is always begins with a rebellion against God, generally a specific command that God has given to that person. Pharaoh is probably the example the listener knows best, but, but also to Israel when Israel rejects God's word. And you can hear a very eloquent protest against that in the first several chapters of Isaiah, but especially chapter one and chapter five. That hardening is... <laughs> is almost several steps earlier than its consequences in the same sense that the rejection of the word of the Lord is in Israel initiated as an ongoing multi-generational process, really with the, the dethronement of God in the time of Samuel. The consequences of that are going to play out over the next several hundred years. And this is where also I think that the attention spans induced by social media with a poly, and I understand why you're on Twitter and everything, but the attention spans induced by social media, but even before that, other technologies really disable people from being able to think in the lengths of time that it's usually profitable to think in. Amen. And the reason that we pursue, for example, classical education with my family is particularly because Classical education gives you an entire civilization, not only that matters to your own civilization for a Western person, but that is fully visible in its extent. Because once Christianity comes to Europe, it will be fundamentally changed, and now you have something different. And maybe we are now in yet a, a third thing after that civilization has now ended and it doesn't mean that there are no pagans left in Europe in the year 600. There are. And it doesn't mean that there are no, for all intents and purposes, medieval Christians left in America in 2023. But it means that we are at some sort of touch point where we either revert to that or continue into a new permutation of that or altogether decisively reject it. I, I don't actually think that we're going to decisively reject it because of the Faustian nature. And that's why I kept saying modern Western man, mm. because Spengler's contention and my contention is not that we are somehow like racially doomed as whatever European people or something, or, or also including Japan to destroy ourselves. It is that those who are not committed to Christ, but who have the power, particularly the scientific and technological capacities developed by this civilization are doomed to destroy themselves because they are two-year-olds spiritually and they are playing with loaded weapons. They are yeah. spiritual dwarves, but they are playing with weapons created by people who were highly intelligent, but perhaps at some point knew how to use them. This obviously excludes, however, nuclear weapons, whose development was fiercely debated at the time. 
you know, should we actually do this? Is this actually, I mean, I'm not speaking of nuclear power. I'm speaking of nuclear weapons. Should we actually, not just should we deploy this? That was a second debate, but should we even do this? And if you look at, and I'm, I'm happy to do more, if you're, if you personally, but also the listeners are interested in this, I'm happy to do more on this. There's plenty to say. What is really horrendous and what Spengler is trying to diagnose in Western man generally, what is really horrendous are the people who just don't even have reservations because they can see the capacities there and they don't want to stop at any point, right? If the capacity is there, they will pursue it. That That is the self-destructive. So I'm not, I'm not worried about those people except as they affect me. Now, that could, that could be a big effect. I, but what I'm saying is they don't have the capacity to be sustainable because they are self-destructive spiritually. So they will self-destruct. Yeah. How much damage do they cause when they do is the real question, right? right? Yeah, um, right. And so and I, wanted, I wanted to write that part down, but I'm not going to. Okay. So I'm, I'm just trying to get, there's an amazing answer, but I'm trying to get a, a theological grip on hardening as a, as a framework a little bit here. And, and what I pulled out of you there is that a rebellion against God occurs in a rejection of his word in a way that over a multi-generational process leads to further rebellion that could not possibly have been foreseen by the original disbelievers right. in their disbelief. Although right. a believer would have been able to say that's not a good idea. Um, but their moment of disbelief doesn't mean they disbelieved all the way across, but on this topic, on this piece of the word, they disbelieved multi-generationally leads further and further till at last you have something of a heedless rejection of any reservation regarding right. whatever words are in your way as you steamroll toward, well, how much damage do you do before you collapse? Does the roof fall in and, and all this? So, right. so with that kind of there again, so then this means to me that the United States of America needs to repent and to ask of what I think would be kind of stupid abortion. Um, but we need to repent of probably more than just that. And barring individuals who say, I'm against these things failing to repent, then nobody's repenting. So uh, let me encourage Christians everywhere to remember that repentance isn't just about like, I'm saying I'm sorry for what I did, right? If, if you get word from a prophet that your, your town's gonna be destroyed, put on sackcloth and ash, get on the ground. Right. Ask Jesus. And, and I mean it. Right. So all of us, I think, need to be repenting on behalf of the United States, on behalf of, therefore, our localities and our local government officials that they would be able to provide food. Uh, that's not what they do. Protect the streams by which the food flows. Anyhow, then there's the hardening, which is over American Christianity as a whole which I think uh, I would like to have your thoughts on a little bit, as well as uh, any potential uh, effects that could have on our, our beloved Senate as well. The hardening is, is always, in its way, sort of desperately simple. It's a, it's a rejection of God's word. And that has to do with a consciousness that I, I would not attribute to somebody who has an Arminian view of salvation. It's, it's, you know, they need to figure that out. Yes. Yes, it's true. But there is a difference between someone who is in error and, and isn't trying to be 
and someone who is being hardened through his rejection of God's word. And it's usually more concrete than you have a strange view of the order of salvation. It's usually like you could have done this and you and you didn't. You shouldn't have done that, but you did, right? And that hardening on American, or even not even to speak of American Christianity, but to speak of America, that hardening on America is a rejection of the word of God that is out of line with what we had been. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll talk about it another time, the notion of covenants and the role that covenants play in the history of New England and then and then because of that in American history. But the idea is pretty simple. It's why you find it throughout American history is uh, whether they call it a covenant or not, whether they're reformed or not, is the idea that you are accountable both as an individual and as a nation to God. And that that has to be handled and and dealt with. You hear this as just a basic cultural assumption as late as Walter Meyer's Lutheran Hour sermons. He will call America to repent. And he wasn't unique in that, but I'll call America to repent for the simple reason that if you read the Old Testament, you can see nations are accountable to God. Now, if you want to like quibble about the word nation, you can talk about it. You can talk about it as a nation state. That's probably what most people are thinking. You can also talk about it as an ethnicity. The words aren't really different, actually, in Hebrew or Greek, nation and ethnicity. But even there, then you can say, okay, well, America has many nations, that's fine. They're all inside the borders of the United States. That kind of discussion, I think, is interesting, and it can be profitable. The issue, though, is that it doesn't get at the root of the hardening. And the root of the hardening is a rejection of the word of the Lord. The reason that I don't think I hate America as much as I know some of the listeners do is and I don't I don't mean the regime or, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services. I mean like the land and the peoples upon the land. Is because I, I don't find that the prophets hate Israel. They don't hate them. Israel is hardened. Israel has turned against the word of the Lord. But if you don't look at them and love them, what good are you really? Right? You see them scattered like sheep without a shepherd and you're angry at them and you hate them. I mean, I mean, do you actually hate boomers? Like, do you hate them? That's what I and feel it, from people, man. I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 so weep for Joseph, right? That's what you got me with theology there, right? You, you do not weep for Joseph. And the, the posture of repentance is not damn those other people. No, <laughs> no. And, and, the, and the posture of the prophet who is not himself hardened, whether it's you and your family and you're the only one that goes to church or whatever your situation is in life. That posture is one of confidence, yeah, amen. but it is not, but it, but it is not one of anger <laughs> in the sense that you are somehow sitting in judgment over the nation. God can use somebody else who actually loves them to help them if you don't actually love them. And I, I'm not saying this like as a, as a, as a sort of emotional matter in the sense that you need to have the right feels. <laughs> I'm saying this in the sense that there is both intellect that is necessary for understanding problems like this. Who was J. Robert Oppenheimer? Who was James Forrestal? 
why did he die under suspicious circumstances? And I would love to talk about that another time. But I think even more than that is love. If you don't look at them and love them, then you are not in the Lord's way because the Lord looks at them and loves them. I mean, they are a disgusting group of people and he looks at them and he loves them and he proclaims the truth to them. That's that's what you have to do when a people is hardened. Now, they're free to reject that, right? That's Jeremiah's whole life. They're totally free to reject it. I mean, horribly, terrifyingly free to reject it. You're proclaiming both that their blood might not be on your head because you were silent, but also because you need to proclaim so that those who are the Lord's may hear the word of the Lord. That's right. That's right. Because they never, they almost never all reject it, right? The no. remnant, the remnant's always no, being called don't. out. They Jeremiah don't. It, sent captives right. to Babylon safely because they listened to his preaching, right? If, so, and it, and it, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you hate America, I would encourage you to travel <laughs> because not only is it a beautiful country, but also guess what happens? In places I have never been that I've never, I don't know anybody. And I'm going to one of those places here in a couple of weeks, and I can talk about it later on if if he wants me to. But I'm going to. He said this guy says to me, "Oh, I've been listening to yours and Pastor Fish show for you know the whole time it's been going on, and it's been so helpful. And you know, you're <laughs> there are way more than seven thousand in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and you're just throwing your hands up or spewing rage all the time." because you don't know any of this or you're, or more commonly you're miserable <laughs> all the time. And it doesn't mean, again, this is not about emotion specifically. Like you have a smile on your face all the time or you're frowning all the time. This is like, do you actually believe God is still living is still doing anything? <laughs> because I think functionally a lot of us don't. So this is yes. what, this is how I would apply this. You, you asked about hardening American Christianity and, and then synod is that the thing that I find as I go across the country among people who have a purchase on the truth that is unusually strong and clear among confessional Lutherans is that they are almost the most despairing people of all. Yeah. More despairing about the future than some of my relatives who aren't Christians. Yeah. You know, so what I, <laughs> I'm well, just asking you to believe that Jesus is alive. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> Cynicism, cynicism yeah, is the yeah. particular sin of the Missouri Synod clergy, and and I, I mean that really as a philosophy, right? That, that somehow underneath all of our confessing, our actual hearts are being driven by by a cynic's approach, a fatalistic yes. approach to yes. history. Right, right. And you hit it on the head when you said, functionally, we act like unbelievers. Functionally, we're atheists. We all believe, like we got this, like this this compartment in our heads and our hearts and our souls. It's true where we all believe, and yet when I got to make my day by day decisions, and God help me, I've been working and breaking these habits. Day by day decisions, I go into kind of habitual drive, which has been raised by modern Western man's self destructive tendencies. And so when it comes to places where I'm demanded yeah. to trust in God. I get a scary story about anything. What's the first thing I do? Try to fix it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Right? That that's the that's the wrong operating first step. That's not yeah. my Christianity at work. I got to take yeah. that thought captive. I got to and discipline again. 
you get me going, man. Functionally, we don't act in trust. That is, it is so true. And so get control of the functionality of your prayer life. Discipline the outside. It'll start changing the inside. Um, because we can't, we, no one's going to join our churches if we keep despairing. Golly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and it, well, well, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I, I, and it, it, it might be helpful. And I mean, I this is going to sound, because I, I devote, you know, a certain portion of every single day to trying to get there to be more Lutheran churches in the United States every day, right? Is that it's probably helpful if you just give up on the idea of trying to secure the future of anything. Hallelujah. Christianity in America, the Missouri Synod, the Roman Catholic Church, whatever it is you care about, just just give up because you're not because you never were actually in control. That 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 is the delusion that man would operate under such that he would be so barbaric he would burn children alive with bombs is that he's in control and he's going to he's going to change the whole future he does not in his blindness and this is part of hardening understand like pastor fist said the consequences 5 years not to speak of 100 or 200 years the consequences of what he's doing right now he just knows that right now it feels like he's powerful that's that's the delusion of man, right? That's that that's that's man's strongest delusion. And so when man is most sinful, when he most rejects the Lord's word, when he is under hardening, and you could you could go find uh the book about the hardening of Israel that was translated by Floyd Brand. Wonderful book. I think it's Paul Hensel, maybe is he it's, it's a great old testament survey. I I got about halfway through it. Yeah is that what you're looking at is hardening is the opposite of election. <sighs> so if, if election is the greatest beauty of God's grace and mercy to mankind, that surely for the sake of Jesus Christ, he has chosen for himself a people and called them by the gospel. Hardening is the most horrible display in this life of man's sin. Right? So election is the most wonderful display of God's grace. Hardening is the most horrible display of man's sinfulness because it contains all of his strongest delusions bundled together. And it's that hardening and the judgment that is as a, is, is, is a result of that hardening. It's that hardening that is so horrible to watch. It's also why the problems that we discuss on the show, and again, I... I would be so happy to talk about whether there are tunnels under Anza Barrigo State Park in California or lots. I mean, it's it's fun, right? It's interesting. But these particular details are not spiritual patterns in and of themselves. You have to know enough of them to find patterns, but then the patterns are never terribly complex. A nation that has turned against the word of the Lord collectively, which people were worrying about back when they were having what now seem like quaint, very gentlemanly very erudite debates about the nature of Genesis 1 in the 1880s. <laughs> and the Northern Presbyterians and the Northern Baptists were disputing verbal inspiration of Scripture. And it, se it seems like a small thing, and it seems like a long-ago thing. The nation that had decided against those, those influences, that had decided against allegiance to Christ, then falls under a judgment of hardening. The church's response to that, and this is why I harped on the, do you love them? 
which if you remember is Jesus' question to Peter. Like, I know you know a lot of things, Peter, but do you love them? Is that what is needed in such a crisis is not only a knowledge of the particularities of the crisis, a knowledge of the evils, the capacity to spot demons when they do appear, like we talked about a few episodes back, but also a a knowledge of and a desire to heal them. Now, if God is free not to heal them, right? He is free to stop up their ears and to keep them stopped up. But that's not the word that he has given me to proclaim. He has given me a gospel to proclaim. So I think maybe some people would have a really hard time understanding my obsession with church planting or evangelism. And, and how, do, how does that fit with, you know, now, now we're talking about Area 51 and we're talking about Roswell, New Mexico, and we're talking about underground bases. It's not just that I find that people are increasingly attached to cleverly devised myths, but it's also that the nation has taken the course that it has at the very same time that the church has become first complacent and now extremely cynical. See how complacency slides so easily into cynicism and despair. Complacent and then cynical about the spread of the gospel. And that in other times, with many fewer resources, we sought to do and achieved far more. Because I think we had a clear understanding of what the stakes were. So all I'm trying to do today, I guess, is make the stakes clear. Right? Yeah. We will we will continue to slide into cleverly devised myths, but also into great, practically, I think, unimaginable evils if we do not proclaim the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. The stake the stakes gotta be clear that, that the king reigns. That his resurrection isn't just something we're looking forward to. Right? But but that today is the day of not just salvation, today is the day in which uh, the light of God inside of you is now shining on your fellow man. And to approach all of these various, I love it, cleverly devised myths. I, I love it, Adam. <laughs> uh, to, to, to approach every single one of these uh, with the kind of ridiculous confidence that no matter what they do, the ark is going to go through the flood and you're inside that boat. And that boat is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, baptism, the Bible, like, is that anywhere near you at all? Like dive in deeper, like no worries. It's all good. He's in charge. Have some hope. (laughs) Yeah. And, and this is, it's a revolutionary reality in an age as black pilled as ours is. And I know you're, I'm totally with you, man. It's not about the feels like don't fake feels, whatever you do, no more sales, stop (laughs) the sales. Okay. But like, you know, it's okay to feel good at church guys. It's okay. Like show some people like, no, I like being here. Like, this is great. This is good. Oh, that person has yelled at me. Whatever. I love this place. Right. Uh, people need that, need that, that inspiration, that, um, that headship, honestly, be a good way to say it. Um, and it's, it's been revolutionary, uh, for me myself, right. To discover how little, uh, hope I was just kind of like leaving behind me, not without trying to, I wasn't trying to be a dark cloud everywhere. Um, but the fact that God stands behind us in all things and his church cannot collapse. Why for so long? This is it, Adam. How, how hardened was I? Why for so long did I buy? I fought against it. Change or die. What a lie. It's a lie. The church can't die. Herman Sasa says so. And he based it on the Bible. It's all true. Like I said this, I said it, but like my heart was always sort of afraid that we were one step away from being done. 
and and that's still going to be there in my flesh. I'm not even saying that I don't find that doubt sometimes, but I'm I'm not yeah. listening to that story anymore. That story is just just bunk. Right. <laughs> it's done. Right. Silenced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm very thankful that I that I came into Christianity in a in a place of of spiritual chaos, and then into the Missouri Synod, eight hours away from the district office, because it does help you clarify what actually matters or when church goes away, what, what goes away. And it, and it's not just something comfortable or familiar because it was, it was neither for me. It is something absolutely necessary, which is the, the preaching and then the hearing of the word of the Lord. So it's that, it's that famine that our nation is undergoing now. Mm. Right. And we're seeking to we're we're engaged in 24 7, 365 famine relief. That's that's what I do. Right. So when you think of it that way, I, I don't I don't actually despair, nor am I actually surprised by the growing prevalence of the kinds of things that we've been talking about in the in this episode, because of course people are going to believe what appear to a to a Christian, certainly to be very strange things precisely because they don't know the word of the Lord. And this isn't some kind of like, you know, 1988 church growth project. We're not, we're not trying to get, you know, a certain number of churches that have 5,000 people on a weekend. We're trying to break through the barrier of darkness that now envelops Almost everyone you see and know mm-hmm. because it's horrible for them, but also for you, right? I mean, do you want to be Elijah? Like, do you, do you want to just go to somewhere so isolated that the ravens have to feed you and you don't have any unbelievers around and you can be left alone, but then you realize, or at least you claim you're the only person that actually believes this stuff. I, I don't want to be Elijah. If I can help it, <laughs> I, w- I would love to be in, a, in Samuel's position, right? Where you still have a multitude with some allegiance or Ezra or, you know, Nehemiah, right? Their position rather than in the position of somebody who just gets to say, I told you so. What's the point in saying, I told you so? Yeah. So can, can we do this one shortly? What about Deborah's position? Left turn, but viewer yeah. Court, yeah. So Deborah's position, and this is a listener question from, I think Kara May was her name. Carla. About Carla, about Deborah and the interpretation of Deborah, because Deborah gets brought up so much. Something to notice here, and this again has to do with seeing patterns, is that when you read the Bible, make sure that you zoom out and see if there's another thing that happened in this pattern. Deborah is very similar to the much less well-known Huldah who is a prophetess from whom they seek the Lord's word just about the time of the fall of Jerusalem, shortly before the fall of Jerusalem. Deborah and Huldah both both pop up as women who are telling men the word of the Lord in circumstances of extreme desertion from the Lord's word and his purposes in Israel by its appointed shepherds in the Old Testament sense of that word. So including what we would call pastors, people who preach God's word, but also kings and military leaders and priests, 
that the shepherds are deserting the word of the Lord or they don't even know it. So you'll notice that Deborah, for example, has to tell Barak, like, go do your job, right? And Hulda tells them something that they should have known because they should know the Bible, but they don't. So this takes nothing away from Deborah and Hulda, but the notion that somehow it means that women should publicly teach the word of God doesn't make any sense. If you're at, if you're like, well, Deborah and Hulda prove that women can be pastors or whatever, or they should, you know, teach Bible studies and this kind of thing. Then what you're saying is I live in absolutely horrible times and nobody knows the Bible. That's what you're actually saying. Right. But, but if saying, you're using but the argument is saying it's a good thing. It's yeah. The argument, thing. Is, the argument is saying it's a good thing because the argument is biblically illiterate. Yeah. So uh, this is where like the moment, the moment someone's like, oh, Deborah, in my soul, my heart, it's not going to come out of my face right away, but in my soul, my heart, I know the conversation doesn't exist. Like dialogue, at least, doesn't exist now. They have brought up something that is not about a logical understanding of the text of the Bible. This is not about piety so far as whatever the Bible says, I want to believe it. When they go to Deborah, what they are doing is they are beginning to dodge. They're beginning to try to get away. They're they not building on logic, and as a result... You have to know then you're engaged in an emotional debate, which has nothing to do with how true anything you say is and has everything to do with the feelings involved in that conversation. Now, that I don't know what you do in those scenarios. There's different ones, right? Sometimes it's, uh, you know, disengage. Sometimes it's uh, see if you can lead them with emotions. I don't know. But it, it is awful like uh, some of the words spoken by Tucker Carlson in the did it get him fired speech he gave last week that now well, is Tuesday. He's been let go, released, whatever is probably good for him. I don't know. But he mm -hmm. talked about in this amazing, was it, um, uh, oh, I forget the, the think tank he was at. I recognized it when I first looked at it, but he gave his talk at their, their luncheon or whatever. And he, and he talked about how he, he learned long ago that in this entire fight against the woke reality, oh, it has nothing to do with what you said, if it's true or makes sense. So if you're going to try to talk to someone who thinks Deborah's a reason for pastors in the present, in the present moment, like right now we got to have women pastors, that'll fix it. Deborah, like that person is not involved in thinking. This person is involved in a spiritual hardening that is already at work and very right. much overflowing from their mouth. Right. How do you deal with that? Well, gently, carefully, wisdom and prudence are pretty key. But what you don't do is try to win the debate with the person. You don't. And, and if and if there's 75% of that person is voting to make women pastors, it's time to leave that church. <laughs> I think, yeah. right? Am I wrong? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, the 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 Deborah the Deborah thing is going to come up as sort of a lazy reflex. Like yeah. we found we found we found it. Like and what's actually going on and this is where I mean I I there are lots of people I don't debate because I don't perceive that what they're saying actually I mean why would I take it seriously when it's not actually what's wrong? If what's wrong, if I take the time, is that this person has this motivation or this person has, in the case of women's ordination, it's often, it's an attachment to novelty that will result. And you can actually see this sometimes in ELCA clergy, for example, that were ordained in maybe the early 70s, is that they've morphed into supporting like transsexualism because the attachment there, the basic attachment was to novelty and to keeping up. And so if the person's spiritual problem is 
he believes that being a Christian means keeping up and being nice as you keep up, then I'm not going to engage him on one specific issue because the issue is that he needs to keep up. And this is where, too, debate has such limitations because it's not actually spiritual guidance. It's information, and that is necessary, but it doesn't provide guidance. Like, why are you like that? Why are you so attached to keeping up? Or why why do you have this basic attachment to women's ordination or to whatever? And that's not... That's not an avoidance of debate out of out of a lack of intellectual interest. It's that debate simply does not seem to me to engage most people on the level of the hunger that they actually have, of the famine that they're actually living in. And in this case, like cheering on, right? Because women pastors are just gonna that's gonna give that's gonna deepen famine conditions, is what that's gonna do. So if they're saying Deborah or you know, whatever, then I would just say. You have to notice the pattern in which prophetesses appear in the Bible and notice that that is not something desirable for any faithful person and that those women are used precisely to rebuke the ills and the errors of men who are otherwise responsible and are shirking those responsibilities. It's not used for Deborah to permanently supplant, like Deborah doesn't have a female successor the same way that the various judges have obviously male successors just in that book, for example. But when you're dealing with somebody that's like, oh yeah, well, but Deborah, what you're actually dealing with is some sort of reflex, some sort of spiritual thing that I try to engage, especially one-on-one, simply through a combination of uh, friendliness to the person, but also trying to ask the right questions to get them to a point where they are beginning to break down their own dumb thinking. So rather than attack them intellectually, I'm trying to push them spiritually in a profitable direction because attacking them intellectually might work, especially if they're intellectually proud. I I want to break that down, but I, I don't usually find that certainly with most normal people, it's why they're saying what they're saying. The information is just being regurgitated out of somewhere deeper and that in order to get to the deeper place, I have to ask the questions that will cause them to ask questions of themselves that will get them going in a better direction. Right. Columbo tactic, Greg Kukul tactics and uh, a little set of notes called talk them into it by yours. Truly uh, trying to deal with some of those, those concepts for conversation awareness, a tough, tough skill set, Dr. Koontz. Uh, I, I, I have not gotten good at it as much as I've studied it, but, uh, yeah. but you're absolutely right there. It's, it's perceiving where that person's, worldview actually is and then you know trying to poke your head into it and say oh, no no i'm really here <laughs> you know and, and here's right. how um and uh i'm not just something on a screen that you're going to swipe by and never see again and and leaving that kind of mark in their world um so i know you wanted to get to uh some new england covenant talk <laughs> today and that is very interesting and connected to everywhere that we're going um i thought you could have made that connection when you brought it up earlier if you wanted we could have rolled right into it but um, no, I was I was having fun with the aliens. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I got, <laughs> on that on that note, I got to go out with this one. So, like, here, okay. here's the thing. I think I think aliens are boring in this way. Yeah. I mean, they're not boring. If they actually show up and we're having to shoot them or something, that'll be interesting, <laughs> at least, right? Terrifying all this, but like, all right. So it's like soup de jour right now is alien scary stuff, right? Like, they, yeah. as you pointed right. out, the psyop is pretty blatant. It would seem. Yeah. Um, 
but if you're like you're picking mythologies of practical future like the mrna bona fide zombie flesh-eating crazy in 10 years like two-thirds of the human population is going to attack us and we don't know it and then they don't have minds and they don't have souls and they don't have hearts because they're really zombies i think that's more fun like if you're really going right. to get scared like right. that seems like they're doing that right that one's right here right now they're messing with the genome like that could go wrong Pro well maybe i don't know but like that if, if you're going to be afraid right then you got to be afraid of zombies too <laughs> so how about we scroll it back to um the faithful witness in the sky that moon same moon jesus put there it's going to just keep going around like that to make sure you know god has it all well under control and that whatever they're doing with the demons in the dark holes of secret whatevers um that's nothing new nimrod was doing that yeah god put a stop to it when he wants to uh, you keep your ark secure get that gopher wood in order yeah take that supper catechize those kids and trust with certainty then that the king who built you for this age is piloting the ship to get you through this age this valley of shadow to the life of the world to come that life again is now in the knowledge that it can't stop you now they, they can't kill you now yea though you die yet you will live you're listening to a brief history of power you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here the hebron collegium is a gap year bible school for men in rockford illinois semi-monastic boot camp for christian living Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. 
If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest.